makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power and power. Greetings, good day, and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And this is First Voices Radio, and I'm your host, Teokas and Ghost Horse. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. Now in its 29th year broadcasting, and Liz Hill is First Voices Radio's outstanding producer. And you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org. And you can hear us internationally at Savvy Tsar Contemporary in Berlin and Potsdam, Germany. I'd like to bring our first guest up here, who's an oftentimes guest at least once a year for the last, I don't know how many decades, but she's, she's still coming through. Stephanie C. is our guest, and she was born in the Outer Banks of North Carolina and raised in Virginia. And she has uh, this culture, culture's capacity for mindless destruction. She talks about that and the beaches and forests she grew up in were destroyed and, uh, by so-called development She's an earth activist since the 1980s and a student of horses, a wildlife rehabilitator. And she started doing the work in Buffalo Field Campaign in 1997. So she moved to Montana and she's been there ever since in Buffalo Field Campaign. She's a member of the Deep Green Resistance since 2015, stands in solidarity with those human and non-human who want to bring an end to industrial civilization and the culture that is killing our planet and Stephanie counts among her heroes, Derek Jensen, John Trudell, and the co-founders of Buffalo Field Campaign, Mike Meese, and Rosalie Little Thunder. And again, if you want to know the information, you can go to buffalofieldcampaign.org. I'd like to welcome Stephanie C. back to First Voices Radio. Thank you so much. It's always so good to talk with you. The, um, we ended with one name, Rosalie Little Thunder. And uh, when I thought about that, wow, yeah, it's been a while since we mentioned her name, but there's something happening in 
the area of Yellowstone National Park in the Gardiner Basin that has to do with the annual Rosalie Little Thunder Memorial Walk. Could you tell us with that uh, about that, Stephanie? We, we, this would have been our fourth annual Rosalie Little Thunder Memorial Walk. Um, she passed on in 2014, um, but because of COVID, we're having to do a virtual celebration of her memory. And so we've created a web page. We're reaching out to folks to share photos and stories and memories and um, just various ways that she's touched individuals and she's touched a lot of people, even people who never met her. Um, so on February 14th, um, we're going to be celebrating this most amazing woman. Um, we think about her every day and miss her very much every day. And she's still helping us from from beyond. Now, Stephanie, she she had, Rosalie Lothunder had had actually walked many, many miles. You, yes. I think you mentioned it, 500 miles from Rapid City to Montana's Gardner Basin. Yep. And people don't understand how long that is. And I could say, well, let's measure it. How long did she take to, to walk? It didn't matter. Is the fact that she completed the walk. And I think that part of the memory is there because of the work you all are doing at Buffalo Field Campaign, especially now here in, in going towards mid-February. What is happening on the ground with BFC? You know, right now, this winter has been pretty quiet. We've had a very mild uh, winter, not a whole lot of snowfall, not a whole lot of really cold temperatures. Um, there was a small family group of buffalo who did come into the Hebgen Basin west of Yellowstone over here, and they had been shot at an, an a few times, and about 10 of their members, adult females, were killed, and they left, and they've been in the park, and we haven't really had many buffalo migrating into Montana since since then. There was a small group that showed up last week. They came very close to the park boundary where they were vulnerable to hunters, but they turned around and they've gone deeper into the park. So right now, the buffalo are keeping themselves alive. It's incredible how something disappears and, and nothing seems to be happening, but I know there's something grinding and and maybe you anticipated or, or could say, well, because of the change over in administrations, will there be any difference in a change of administration? We are hopeful that there will be, especially if Deb Howland gets to be at the helm of the Interior Department. Um, we don't know exactly what might take place, but we're, we're hopeful for some positive change. I think, I think you know we're still fighting hard for Endangered Species Act protection for this last wild population, and, and maybe we'll have some, some better luck with the new administration. It's, it's hard to say what might take place. So when, when it's quiet, is there more people coming to, to help out or is it just more of a break feeling or what, what's going on? I mean, I, I, I've never been there in all these years and I've wanted to go nearly 20 years now or more and still haven't made it. What, what encourages people to stay when, you know, our, our guard is let down, so to speak? Well, um, first of all, I hope one day you can come out here. That would be so fantastic. Um, you know, we still run daily field patrols. We're still going out on skis every day, checking the buffalo's migration corridors. 
we know that at any given moment there's going to be just enough snow to trigger that migration. And, you know, this year's weird because of COVID as well. We're not really taking new volunteers. So the crew that we have is the crew that we all have for the whole entire season. Um, and it is kind of, I wouldn't say it's vacation mode because everyone's busy doing stuff around the cabins, going on patrols, you know, just being in touch with supporters, taking care of all kinds of things. But it is, you know, we're not having to chase down agents or document hunting or document the park. We're not, our gardener camp isn't open yet because no buffalo migrated into the gardener basin. So, I mean, we're still busy, but yeah, it is, it is kind of vacation mode. I mean, we don't have to get up quite as early as we usually would. And, um, patrols are just more pleasant because we're not seeing the bad things happening to the buffalo. When, when I, I would, would think that buffalo, be, their behavior has changed a little bit. Is, has anything changed with them since there's not the hazing or, you know, or increasing population uh, buffalo? If that, that's probably not my knowledge, but there probably is and more on the way. But it's this expectancy that of course, the, the the government and the agents will be coming again soon. I'm I'm trying to get some numbers here, Steffi. Stephanie, is how many buffalo are there, and what is the average loss every year? Well, they estimated the population to be around 4,700. That's 4,700 individuals. Think about that from 70 million once upon a time, and um, they aim to kill up to upwards of 900 buffalo this year. The Park Service is going to open up their trap when, when the buffalo start to come, and, of course, the hunters are going to descend upon the landscape and, and take as many as they can. So they're looking to kill upwards of 900 this year. It's, it's really unfortunate. You know, when I'm thinking about the, the legislation that, you, that, that has been keeping and maybe taunting the peoples who are more or less... Um, adhering to we need buff uh, beef and beef tastes better is better and uh, that's that's you know, the, the cow is king the cash is cow the cow is cash or whatever but yet people don't know i'm not saying encouraged to eat buffalo but why why would native people fight so hard in the past as you all are now to make sure that these buffalo, if anything, the best and pure strain of these buffalo are still around for the future? You know, that's a really good question, and that's one that we ask ourselves quite often. Um, but I think that there is this sense of, you know, the people, the people who come to hunt under treaty right are trying to reestablish a relationship with the buffalo, and yet they're up against Yellowstone National Park, who captures and kills, ships to slaughter hundreds more buffalo than the hunters take. Um, But it sets up this really strange, competitive feel, like the hunters think that they um, need to kill as many and as quickly as they can before the Park Service starts to capture them and ship them to slaughter. But it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally. Um, you know, there's this thing, I don't know, have you ever read the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer? Oh, yeah. So there's a part in there where she talks about the Pacific Northwest tribes and how the, the uh, salmon people, they used to light beacon fires at the edge of the ocean when the salmon were starting to return to the rivers to spawn. And they would sing them welcoming songs. 
and they would let the fish go by, swim by for four days before ever taking a single fish. And that's something that I think that could happen for the buffalo. You know, it's just it sounds like such a beautiful and respectful way to go about things, but with this capture facility in place, there's just a sense of urgency, a sense of competition. Um, people want to feed their families, and so, I mean, it's hard for me as a non-Native person to, to answer that question, you know, but I think it's it's a very good question that needs to be asked. Yeah, I think, you know, anyone who, and this is coming from an Indigenous person that anyone who's ally to the earth and even ally mentally to native people and the native people to the earth in that in that relationship where things move and the awareness is, is kept alive um, is is very fairly dangerous to those people who set the rules and regulations and it uh, you know we do need buffalo the original buffalo here just as much as we do need the original thinking Native people alive with yeah. their languages, with their culture. And I would say, you know, people t- talk about civilization as if the civilization is going to Mars and there's no water, there is no air, there is no food. You know, you can think about this barren planet called Mars that people are geared up to that and, in, and into a technical, logical, mental Injustice, even to themselves, because they they are disconnecting disconnecting from the earth, and, and no longer know the relationship. But yet, within all the human beings in themselves, that's what we long for: is that relationship. And the loss of animals, even the original seeds, where all life comes from. You know, the mother of Mother Earth is a seed, and so when we find that, and the consciousness is clear within us. That, that's when we start standing up for the earth. And I think above all the politics, above all the, the religion and, you know, uh, the sciences, it comes to the culture of earth. And this is kind of a personal statement, but I've always supported the allies who have, you know, because of numbers, because of privilege, but because they can, they're going out there with this, maybe they go there with a conscience, but now this is a consciousness that they've been, I would say, uh, experiencing with the earth and, in this case, the buffalo. Um, yeah, your very, thought, very your, well said. Your thoughts? I, you, just, you just took them all out of my head. <laughs> that, that was beautifully said. And so when, when we are celebrating Rosalie once in a while, we, we do remind, because I've uh, spent time with Rosalie and actually have uh, interviewed here quite a few times in the 2000s and in in the in the nineties when you all start moving out there in ninety five with mm-hmm. Mike Meese and all. So this is going out to Rosalie Little Thunder who passed away in two thousand fourteen. She's barely uh if anything, not even sixty years old, but she was uh might she I think she was, but she had had brought a lot of uh attention, not just to natives, but to those peoples who you know, they make Buffalo a novelty when it's actually one of the, as you as you stated before, Stephanie C., is that it's one of the um, a keystone species to keeping that whole area prairie that that went up into to to Canada out towards the east, even out into New York. Yeah. Buffalo were roaming everywhere because it was their 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 way to live. It was not just that they were nomads. 
but this is actually, they knew what they were doing. And uh, I, I liken that to humans who think we know what we're doing by reading ourselves of other species that are keystone like that. And, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering the familiarity that has been lost when we get away from, from nature, as you have, uh, from what I understand it, you have found moving from the East Coast and now you're out there into the wilderness. It's just such a special thing. I mean, I don't know if I'm answering this correctly, but just being having the honor and privilege of being out here in this ecosystem, in this wild community, and getting to see the buffalo and be with them on the ground they choose to be on and get to watch them and how they interact with each other, how they interact with other wildlife, and, and to be able to see all these other wild wildlife it's just the most amazing thing. And then you think about the human dis- the destruction that is so prevalent and it's so mindless and thoughtless. And you just can't understand, wrap your head around how anyone could do these atrocious things to, to the planet, to our mother. And I just, I give thanks every day that I get to be in a mostly intact ecosystem wild community to to be able to experience this beauty um, and all of the wonders here. And it just, I don't know, it makes us all, all of us here, it makes us crazy, even just the snowmobilers that zoom around and just destroy the the snow, you know, and um, it it's a def, it's such a different mindset from certain people, you know, like the people who come and recreate on those machines uh, to the people who are coming out and being on the earth, just walking in snowshoes or being on skis and being able to hear the quiet, to hear the animals, to really take that all in and, and be part of it. And that is a part of it. Um, we, we think being part of it is is being a tourist and going out there and taking pictures and getting close to Buffalo. You right. Know? And someone said that it's it's close to the season once again where tourists will be soon this long winter will be over and buffalo will be throwing tourists in the air again <laughs> you know and that's a mindset i mean there's signs posted and so this is a, a warning those folks who want to get up close to buffalo you know like anything if you invade their their land or their territory yeah. their space they're going they're going to do something just like you know it, it's a new person coming into your living room what are you going to do right and, and there's so many people who come here and think that Yellowstone's just a giant petting zoo. I mean, really stupid, stupid humans. It's it's amazing. And then you know the buffalo, they tell you it doesn't. You don't. It's not hard to communicate with a buffalo. I mean, and they let you know when you've crossed that line and when it's time to back off and and give them their space. And there's so many people who just don't listen, and then they get tossed, and there you go. And and thankfully, Yellowstone doesn't do anything to the buffalo when those situations occur, because they know it's human error. Well, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so glad we're just talking and are not really into the urgency, but there, it always seems to be looming that, yes. that things will happen. And give us the prime reason and the excuses that they've used before we go, you know, we, we end this interview, Steffi, why they are getting rid of buffalo. Well, so they used to use the excuse of a disease called brucellosis, 
which came to this continent with invasive cattle, with livestock. Um, and it was only through human error that the, the brucellosis was introduced into the wild buffalo and wild elk populations um, close to the turn of the last century. And there's never been a documented case of a wild buffalo transmitting brucellosis back to cattle, ever, even where they've coexisted. On the other hand, elk, who are much more numerous in Montana than wild bison, have been implicated numerous times and uh, transmitting brucellosis to in not just Montana, but also Idaho and Wyoming, and yet the elk are free to roam. So we know this isn't about brucellosis. That's been a really good excuse that the cattle industry has used, this threat of a disease, and it's not even a big deal disease. If a, a buffalo gets it, they have one, it'll, it happens in the females, they'll have a miscarriage one time and then resume normal birthing cycles and develop antibodies. So it's not even a big deal. But, um, you can see the more and more holes are blown into the brucellosis myth that this is really about the grass and who gets to eat it. It's a centuries-old range war. It's the same thing. And um, so nowadays they're trying to use the words population control, saying that 4,700 wild buffalo relative to 70 million is too many. That's called declining baselines when you normalize worsening conditions. And yet, year after year, they want to kill hundreds more and hundreds more, even though there is a lot of support. The majority of people in Montana and beyond support wild migratory buffalo. And it's just, it's a, you know, people, oh, they're going to knock down fences, they're going to get on the highways. And it's like, these are things we can work with. We are smart enough to be able to make it work, you know. So it's the human that needs to change, and that's the really hard part. But the excuse that they're using today is population, which is ridiculous because 4,700 buffalo, that's like nothing. And to have them all right here, if any disaster hit, like we have chronic wasting disease in Montana now on the edge of Yellowstone. And that, that is going after the deer family, moose, elk, and deer. But scientists are worried it could morph. And it could target bighorn, it could target buffalo, it could target pronghorn, and then we're screwed, you know? I mean, this is the last wild population left in the country. So these buffalo need to be able to get out and restore themselves across their land on their own terms. It's not that hard. It's not that hard, yes. (laughs) Stephanie Sees, thank you for being here. It's always that honor to have you update us, even if there's not such uh, something going on up there that we have to make it a newsy item. It's good to converse with you. And, yeah. you know, I think about the faithfulness. I think Rosie Lee said something. The faithfulness, the faithfulness of the buffalo to land. Yes. The faithfulness of species that we call the wild. That, that, well, I don't know where this word wild came from, but it's right. so natural. The faithfulness, where's that faithfulness that we lack as native as human beings, actually. Where is that faithfulness to the earth? That's the big question. Great question. Whom do we serve? Who do we serve? Yes. So, hey, Stephanie, thank you for being here once again. Thank you so much. Is, uh, you know, someone said to me, uh, a young non-Native person, she she said, I was born with my fists in the air, you know, and (laughs) 
that's that's the way I'm going to go out. So yeah, I yeah. think that that's just how it is because feet on the feet on the ground, keep it going there in the Buffalo Field campaign, and say hello to Mike and all the other people in that area who are standing up for the earth. Thank you very much. Will again. do. Thank you so much. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And this all is right. great. Good talk with you. This is Tiokas and Ghost Horse, and you're listening to First Voices Radio. And uh, I would like to, you know, play a, a song here. I think most of us may or may not know what or we've not really um, talked about the missing and murdered Indigenous women uh, in Canada, but throughout the United States and even down into South America, there are so many Indigenous women missing. Um, I have to think about it this way, is that in the past, the patriarchal system came from over the seas and looked to the chiefs and only looked to the males and started getting rid of the males, <clears throat> Native people. And then now it seems to be a different ploy because our culture was held together by by Native women who knew who they were. So they kept the languages, they kept the culture within with all the oppression, with all the getting rid of the, the eradication of Native people. Uh, millions, just millions and millions. And and now at that turn of the 19th, uh, 1900s, uh, a quarter of a million people existed within the contiguous United States. And, you know, now it's it's up to three million people, a little bit more than that, perhaps. But then you you find that now our indigenous women are missing. And so this next song, it's it's about a, a band, Indian City, that has addressed this on their new single called Through the Flood. And it's a Juno Award-winning Winnipeg folk singer, Don Amaro, on vocals, pulls no punches with its lyrical content. And it starts off with the, the lines, dark secrets, darker lies, fading heartbeat, fading cries, and it reaches brothers, stand, sisters too, I'm right here next to you. And uh, you, you'll hear the song, and it's in, in honor and in, in bringing more attention to what is going on with the missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada and in the United States throughout Turtle Island. And I just wanted to bring these types of protest songs, I would call it, but these are protection songs, as we would call them. Uh, even in our language, in our traditional music, we're, we're protecting. We're not attacking. We're protecting. And this is called Through the Flood. Rising through 
ray of light rising up, ending night. Never here, never gone. Hope returns when the dawn, the tide is turned, the waters rise. Another Through the flood, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, people, the 19-year-old daughter of Vince Fontaine, Gabrielle, who contributes to the song and uh, basically describing the hope emerging as well as all stand together with these families in the midst, yes, in the midst of the healing process. And uh, she's honored, of course, but Vince Fontaine, who is the Indian City band leader and Eagle and Hawk member uh, in the press release wanted to remember those that we have already lost and to share the weight of families in pain. And socially, we want to foster a future of healing and positive change. And politically, we want to continue the conversation of equal weight to tragedies all across the communities in North America, but in Canada. Through the flood, a new release. Our next guest and uh, a visiting guest uh, we've had in the past year is Max Wilbert, who is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide has been parts of grassroots um, political work for nearly 20 years. He's an author, and his essays have been published in many places, including Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. And he's been involved in fighting both Canadian and Utah star, tar sands, in, uh, resisting industrial-scale water extraction and deforestation in Nevada. So I'd like to talk about what's going on in in Nevada right now, where these group of activists, uh, Max Wilbert and Will Falk, his friend, launched an occupation of a proposed mine in northern Nevada. And Lithium America's corporation plans to rip open 5,000 acres of this land to extract lithium for consumer products. And Max was a guest on First Voices Radio, as I said, a couple of weeks ago to talk about that occupation. And now he's here again to Give us an update. I'd like to ask you to look to protectthackerpass.org for more information. Good morning, Max. How is it going out there in Nevada? 
Good morning, Tiokasin. Things are going well. I'm actually not on the site right now of the proposed mine because the BLM told us they were going to arrest us if we uh, if we continue to camp on the site. So we're working on pushing back against that. But I'm off site for the moment right now, organizing from afar while some other folks hold down uh, the camp, which is in day 25, I believe, of the protest. You said there are other folks out there in this protest of the lithium mine. And, and when is that mine scheduled to open? Well, it's a little bit unclear. We don't have an exact date on when they want to begin construction, but we know it's soon. I actually got word this morning about some of the permits that they are waiting on, and it wasn't good news. This project is uh, closer to beginning construction than we had previously thought it was. Uh, so it's very possible that sometime in the next the next few weeks, the next month, the next two months, uh, the bulldozers might show up out there and start, uh, you know, ripping open the, the flesh of the planet, you know, trying to pull out money. So what what's this, um, this, I would say, this grandiose idea of switching from, you know, fossil fuels to a more alternative source such as lithium? And why is it so dangerous? Yeah, well, first of all, I guess I'll say that, you know, global warming is a huge, serious problem. Fossil fuels are incredibly destructive. I'm sure everyone listening to this show knows, you know, you look at the tar sands, you look at fracking, you look at offshore drilling, you look at mountaintop removal coal mining, it's an atrocity. It's terrible. It's, it's destroying the foundations of life itself on this planet. And we need, as a, as a world, as a, as a culture, to, to abandon fossil fuels and move away from them. And, uh, you know, that's very smart. It's a very good impulse that people have. The problem comes in when people try to maintain the modern high-energy way of life that we have now by simply replacing fossil fuels with another energy source. And that's why you get so many people saying, you know, we need nuclear power. We need all these nuclear plants. You know, even some climate scientists argue for nuclear power because they say we can save the the climate and we can save civilization with nuclear power. And I look at nuclear, of course, as an atrocity. You know, it's, a, it's another industry that has been incredibly destructive for the living world that has poisoned so many people. You know, and just having been on Western Shoshone and Paiute territory in Nevada, those people know better than almost anyone on the planet the harms of, of nuclear technologies. You know, their homelands have been used as a, as a bombing range for that industry for generations now. You know, and with this solar and wind and, and this electric car technology that requires these lithium-ion batteries, a lot of people are trying to maintain this modern high-energy way of life. And we have been sold this idea that lithium batteries and solar panels and so on will allow us to continue living more or less the same way we live now, but not hurt the earth while we do it. And, you know, if you actually get out there on the ground and you see what's at stake, you see what a lithium mine looks like, uh, you see what's going to be destroyed in this place, Thacker Pass, uh, for the sake of batteries, uh, we don't need that for survival. You know, our ancestors didn't have cars they didn't have any cars you go back a couple generations and they made do they they were fine without cars 
we need to get back to that, that, that way of life, a simpler way of life, a low energy way of life, a more localized, humble way of life. And, uh, you know, this, this whole fantasy of, you know, quote unquote, green lithium and green electric cars and green solar power. And it's just that it's a fantasy. It, it seems so simple that the way you explain it, that we can actually wean ourselves in, in a way knowing that we are addicted to a certain behavior that supports this, this supports that, you know, we can, you know, for the turn of a key and the Philippi, Philip, filling a tank and drilling thousands of feet in other countries and even our, in this is this uh, United States is that we can appease our own desire and, and addiction to, to get somewhere very fast. We all are affected by it. And I'm thinking that yeah. even now, Max, you and Will and the rest of the folks that are there, now the, the, the simple fact is that you're bringing this to attention and this big bad government, Bureau of Land Management, who oversees everything to seem seemingly possible um, from the eyes of government is is when the BLM extricates and removes people like Carrie Dan, who's no longer with us, from their protection of that land that there was so pristine, everything was green within the la their land, and everything around that was decimated. There was nothing green because of uh, the misuse of it. But yet it's now people, it's just a, a futuristic scene to have a few straggling people protecting the earth. That seems to be the mindset. When do we and can we re-educate ourselves by unlearning what we learned, you know, how to be addicted? I think what you're explaining to me, Will, is is a feeling that somehow along the line you had to look at this as an addiction that you didn't want uh, haunting you and the pain of it anymore. Yeah, I think it is an addiction. You know, there was a, a really intelligent uh, thinker. I didn't agree with everything he, he thought, of course. <laughs> That's true of pretty much everyone. But there was an intelligent uh, thinker named Lewis Mumford, and he called it the magnificent bribe. And what he meant by that was, you know, living in a modern high industrial technology civilization, we've all sort of been bribed, uh, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, of course, depending on uh, the amount of wealth or, or poverty that you live under. We've all been bribed by this culture, you know, and we live in such a world of instant gratification, and it's so easy to escape reality with Netflix and scrolling on Facebook and playing the latest video game or whatever it is. Uh, it's so easy to escape reality and not really just sit with uncomfortable truths and uncomfortable um, the realities of what's happening on this planet. And, you know, it, it, that magnificent bribe in some ways is, is very important, but in another sense, it's also not our fault. You know, I think that it's really easy to get sucked into what a friend of mine calls the personal responsibility vortex where everything that's going wrong in the planet is, is my fault and your fault and our, you know, our fault as individuals because we live in this culture and you know, I'm talking to you on a phone and we're connected via the internet and therefore we're hypocrites and we have no right to criticize these systems and it's all our fault. And that sort of uh, worldview, which takes 
personal responsibility for everything, um, you know, it can lead people to be paralyzed and to, uh, to feel like it's impossible to make the world a better place. And I think it's really important to, yes, to take some personal responsibility and to try and live in a light way as much as we can as individuals on the planet. But I think, you know, much more important and much more central is that we collectively organize together, that we change the culture that we live in, that we stop the forces, the institutions that are destroying the planet that are really pushing these things on us. Uh, you know, and it, it, these aren't, it's not me or you or anyone who's listening to this show who's making the decisions about lithium, about mining, about extraction. We're not making those calls. There are other people who are making those calls and making those decisions. And there are forces behind them. The, the Lithium America's company raised $400 million in one day to destroy this mountain. And meanwhile, our resistance has raised about $8,000 uh, to pay for the cost of getting people out there. So you want to talk about a disparity in power and wealth. You know, we know we live in this very unequal society where a few people are making the decisions that are really harming everyone else. And, and that's something that we see here as well. So I think it's our responsibility to to collectively organize and, and stop them. Beyond, beyond the education, we need to educate each other. We need to share information about this and sort of break through the lies. But the most important thing is that once we have that education, once we have people on our side, that we get together and we actually stop those wealthy individuals and corporations and the institutions behind them from doing what they do, doing what they've done for hundreds of years now or longer, which is extract and exploit and destroy, because that's where they get their power and their wealth from. We're speaking with Max Wilbert to launch an occupation along with his friend Will Falk of a proposed mine in northern Nevada, the Lithium Americas Corporation, which plans to rip open 5,000 acres of land to extract lithium for consumer products such as cars and batteries. And I just tried to get a hold of Will Falk, and um, something didn't go through. So we're going to con continue on with you. I know Will, Will has legal legalese behind him, and I'm wondering if you could pick up a little bit of what he's, he's uh, trying to do, what you all are trying to do through that legal system to prevent the mining from going on and to get more news out there for people to really be educated about lithium. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, we, I'm glad that you're having me on the show, Teokasen, because we think it's really important that we acknowledge that this is uh, Western Shoshone and Northern Paiute territory that this mine is, is proposed for. And we really want to collaborate. We're already collaborating with some uh, local and regional uh, Paiute and Shoshone people and other people. Um, and we want to collaborate with more people. So if there are any, especially any Western Shoshone and Northern Paiute people who are listening today, uh, I really want to encourage you to, to reach out to us and get in touch um, because we're, we're, we're working on pushing that angle. We want this fight to not just be about the mountain and not just be about uh, lithium, but also be about colonization and uh, stolen land and the ongoing pattern of, of resource extraction and 
you know, violent separation of people from, from the planet and from ancestral territories. Um, so that's, that's one aspect that we're taking. Another aspect that we're working on is, is a First Amendment uh, angle for this fight. We're working on uh, an argument that says that, you know, we should be allowed to be on this site. We should be allowed to protest here because it's our First Amendment right uh, to express ourselves politically. The BLM has tried to use a law to push us off the site that was originally set up to stop people from camping for long periods of time on the land. And, you know, there's some, there's some good reasons to have a law like that. You know, you don't want just somebody setting up camp next to a sensitive spring or a stream or uh, on a meadow and just trampling it uh, for months upon months and, and destroying it. What we're seeing, however, is that this law is being enforced against us in an unequal and unfair way, where it's not being enforced elsewhere in BLM-managed lands. Uh, so, you know, there, there are plenty of people who set up camp, they set up their RVs, they bring out their ATVs and their dirt bikes, and they camp out for a month or two or longer. And the BLM never comes by and tells them to leave. It never tells them they're violating the 14-day camping limit even though they tend to have a lot more impact on the land than we do. But we think this is a, a political-based enforcement of the law. They're coming after us because we're protesting, specifically. So we're going to be fighting back against that. And the other point that uh, my, my, uh, my good friend, Mateau, pointed out to me is that that 14-day camping limit serves as a way to keep indigenous people off their lands. It serves as a, a, a legal enforcement tool that allows these government agencies to say, you can't, you can't be here. Even though uh, the Western Shoshone, the, the Treaty of Ruby Valley, never actually ceded the land to the U.S. federal government. That's unceded territory. And that's an unusual situation in the U.S. In Canada, it's pretty common for uh, different First Nations to never have ceded their territories legally to the Canadian uh, the government. But here in the U.S., the Western Shoshone are one of the only, only nations that never legally gave title to the United States. And uh, that's one reason, among others, that the, the United Nations ruled a number of years ago that uh, the U.S. has repeatedly and continues to violate the human rights of the Western Shoshone Nation specifically. And so we're uh, working to build on that case and push back against the mining company and the BLM, which seems to be in their pocket. Max Wilbert, we had, we do have Will Falk on the line. Will, are you there? I am. Hello. Hello, Will. Sorry, I've not not been able to dial you earlier. And you're you're a writer and lawyer, and I talked to Max, who talked about. I said that you knew the legalese, and he explained what he could, and we do understand it a little bit more. Um, that Native people are being involved now, but also this you call it the first ever American federal lawsuit seeking rights for a major ecosystem, which is the Colorado River. Talk a little bit more about that, uh, Will Falk. Yeah, so I've I've been involved in the uh, rights of nature movement um, for the last four or five years now. It I really cut my teeth on rights of nature with that Colorado River lawsuit that you mentioned. 
which was the first time that someone went into an American federal court and asked uh, a judge to declare that a major ecosystem, the Colorado River in this case, uh, was um, an entity that was capable of bearing the same rights as a legal person uh, in the United States, and also that the Colorado River would um, have the right to exist, thrive, flourish, and regenerate. And that lawsuit (laughs) was uh, thrown out very quickly. Um, We were reminded that uh, the natural world is only an object, only property under American law. And therefore, we should have known that um, we we should not have brought that case and that there is absolutely no precedent in American or Western law to to recognize major ecosystems as, as persons. This all comes despite the fact that corporations, uh, which are just a piece of paper that give um, you know wealthy people the ability to shield themselves from liability, corporations have... Uh, the same rights as legal persons in this country. Um, and, Will Falk, what, what are the similarities that you may be bringing from that experience with the Colorado River into uh, Thacker Pass and the, the resistance that you and Max have formed there? Well, uh, I think it's really it's a really exciting opportunity um, to uh, really explicitly tie rights as nature um, work to to indigenous worldviews and indigenous uh, spiritualities. So rights of nature essentially come from the idea that the natural world is sacred and that human beings should place limits on themselves uh, when when engaging or relating with the natural world. And I am uncomfortable with the Western concept of rights. Rights uh, originally were given by the king and therefore take the king or or the government as a as a given and um i think that rights then are different than a more traditional worldview where we have a responsibility to protect the land but i think that rights of nature do get us much closer to that idea that the land is sacred and that we have a responsibility to protect the land than than any other legal concept that's being advanced right now. And in this way, we can return um, our, our legal system and our cultural uh, morality to a type of morality that more closely reflects uh, the way all of our ancestors lived for for time immemorial. And so with with the uh, interesting legal angles that the Western Shoshone can bring, um, specifically with, uh, I think I heard Max talking about how this this area is unseated. The, the Western Shoshone um, did not uh, sign a treaty with the American government, and, and therefore the American government under even Western notions of of land ownership, uh, the American government is an invader on on this land. So if we can tie some of the Western Shoshone ideas about about the sacredness of the land uh, to rights of nature, I think that this could be a really compelling legal argument for for the courts and for. Uh, people to understand just how uh, just how American law ensures ecocide 
and also ensures that um, the the first uh, First Nations in the United States um, have been have been invaded and occupied and um, their their oppression ensured by American law. The legalese that you know has, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about what we would call treaty lease, the treaties that were unseated and ceded lands and those that were bought under pressure. Uh, they were induced in, in some form or another to give that land up. And it's, it's like, you know, I think stealing something from people who didn't know what property was about. And I think that's a real issue that most people don't want to take up because this programming that everything is owned and is in possession of is actually, like you said, tied to the king and the right or the normal, the right angle thinking. So uh, obviously the, the left Right. The left is what it is, meaning that we are not normal thinkers. But I, what I'm feeling is uh, in this, this last minute or so, that last the last uh, interview I did, uh, we talked about an, an elder, Rosalie Lilthunder, and the buffalo and how their faithfulness to the land, to the earth was so strong. And that's what they live by. There is no no alternative but to have faith with the earth and you have the government, you have the science and you have military, you have, you have, you know, religion all in the way from really living that faith with the earth. And I want to say that now, but that's, uh, we're out of time. That was a little commentary on mine, but I want to thank you, Will Falk and uh, Max Wilbert for joining us all the way out there in Nevada. And we'll, we'll update as we go along. Thank you so much for, for joining us here. Once again, it's an thank honor. You. Yeah. And thank you very thank much you, for, sir. for, giving Thacker Pass this platform. There we go. Thank you. And again, if you want to visit Thacker Pass, go to protectthackerpass.org. And once again, this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and uh, we'll have to leave it there and join us next week as we transform the game, transform your game.
hear my 